Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. One of the dirty secrets of the Christian life is what goes into you getting ready for church on Sunday morning, especially if you have kids in your home. Now, everyone knows what you look like when you arrive at church. That's not a secret at all. You are all smiles. You're greeting one another in the parking lot or in our hallways. Everyone looks nice. I mean, we don't dress up in our Sunday best anymore, but you look decent enough to uh, be presentable to others. The perfect picture of families who love each other and are gladly attending another Sunday morning service. But before that Norman Rockwell portrait, there just might be some things that are not so picture-worthy, things that you are not going to post on social media. Perhaps there was this morning some angry yelling at the kids because they were complaining yet again. We just went last Sunday. Do we really have to do all of this all over again? Maybe there were some arguments over what to wear, what is appropriate and is not appropriate for a Sunday gathering. Maybe breakfast was so hurried that some things even got thrown around the kitchen. And they're waiting for you when you get home and you will have to clean up the mess that you made before you left. But of course, the bigger issue, and dare I tread into dangerous stereotypes here, but the bigger issue is that the wife is just not ready yet again. She's gotten up on time, but she is now on her fourth outfit and is still not satisfied and Need I even mention the hair? It's just not working right this morning. And this has led to a high-octane argument with debates about who's doing what with the kids and who's helping or not helping, and maybe even the threat of, if you're not ready in 10 minutes, I'm just going to leave without you. Everyone, of course, does eventually get in the car. You might have to break a few speed limits and run a few yellow lights along the way, but you eventually make it to church close to starting time, though of course no one has said a word in the car ride here. Uh, No one's said anything because they're afraid if they do, dad is going to say something in response. But the whole family instinctively knows that their attitude changes the minute you're in the parking spot and the doors are open and you're all smiles again. Now keep in mind, I'm talking about your home, not mine. And I mean that. We've not had these kind of arguments. In spite of the fact that all of our married life, we have gone to church on a regular basis, we've never had a Sunday morning like that. The reason is I'm a pastor. And so I leave the house before everyone else is up. So I've not had those Sunday mornings, but We've certainly had those kinds of days when we're getting ready for other events just like you have. Because getting ready, especially as a family, is sometimes very difficult and time-consuming. It is often filled with anxiety, frustration, anger, and fighting. 
while even complaining about the fact that you have to go to whatever event it is, though you don't really want to be there. There just never seems to be enough time. And in spite of your best planning, you always seem to be rushed. Well, this morning we are going to talk about getting ready. But we're not going to talk about getting ready for church or even some event or a ball game. We're going to talk about something much more important than that. We have been in a series, of course, on some of the parables of Jesus. And we have noticed that many of these parables talk about the kingdom of heaven. We have been primarily focused on the present reality of that kingdom. Again, we've said there are two aspects to it. There is a future element to the kingdom of heaven, one that we're not at yet. But then there is a present reality living as we are now in the kingdom of heaven. This morning, we're actually going to be talking about both of those things. We're going to talk about being ready for the consummation of the kingdom while at the same time living faithfully until such time as Christ returns. I'm sure you are familiar with the children's game of hide and seek. That is, one child closes his or her eyes while everyone else goes and hides, and they count a certain number, and then when they finish counting, they begin to look for their friends. Their friends have hidden, and now it is their job to try to find them. But at the end of that countdown, the, the line is always the same. Ready or not, here I come. Well, we're going to talk this morning about being ready or not. Our text is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, as we look at another parable of Jesus. Luke 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise messenger whom his master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. 
and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, you may have noticed that this is actually several parables with a question from Peter sandwiched in between in verse 41 there. In fact, you could make the case that there's actually three parables here if you take the, the issue about the thief being a separate parable, but we're not going to debate about that this morning. I had actually had this in two different sermons when I outlined this series, but as I read this this week, I decided that the subject matter is so close to one another that we would put them together in one sermon. So we will deal with the two parables as two of our points, and then we will deal with Peter's question in the middle as a point separate to the two parables. I couldn't have a sermon with just two points. That's not biblical. And so there, this sermon will have three points like most sermons do. Plus, I was afraid if I only had two points, we might get out early, and I certainly can't have that happening. So first of all, we need to look at this first parable, and the message of this first parable is be ready because you don't know when. Now, this is a little different than some of the other parables because he tells us the point right at the outset. And then he reiterates the point at the end. And the parable itself is in between those two points. Now, we're going to take the parable first, and then we'll try to deal with and drive home the point. So verse 36 says, and be like men which clues us into the fact that he's about to tell a story designed to illustrate the point that he's already given in verse 35. Now, the setting of this particular parable is in an ancient Roman home. And in that ancient Roman home, whether we like it or not, there would be not only family, not only extended family, but there would be servants as well. Now, Jesus is not endorsing this model. He is simply using the household environment that everyone would have been familiar with to make his spiritual point or spiritual truth. Now, I don't often do this. That is, put into my sermon something that someone has suggested that I put in my sermon. First of all, I don't get many of those suggestions and furthermore, I hope by doing that this morning, I don't get a rash of them after this. But I am putting in my sermon today something that someone has asked me to. And that someone is Miss Madge Kane. I don't know where she is. She was in the choir before. She's down here somewhere now. Miss Madge is 94 years old, and she is very faithful in coming to church. So because of those two things, I'm adding in what she wanted me to say. She said growing up that she often heard that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So she wanted me to throw that in there, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking an earthly situation, that is the environment of the home that would have included servants, and he is using that earthly story to teach a heavenly meaning. So once again, we find that the master of the home has gone away. He has left, and he has left the servants at home by themselves. But these servants are always watchful. They want to be ready when the master returns. Now, remember, this was a time before instant communication. The master cannot text them an hour before he gets home and says, I'll be there in an hour. 
They do not have an app on their phone that they can track one another. So they don't have the opportunity to track the master and know when he's coming home. By the way, I love that feature on the phone. We use it all the time. We track Jacob every Sunday afternoon because he gets home from church later than we do. And so we track him so we know exactly when he's going to be home so that my wife can have lunch ready the minute he walks in the door so that we don't have to wait any longer for him. But none of that was available at this time of the story, so it was necessary for the servants to be always on the alert. They did not want to let their guard down. They did not want the master to return at a time when they were not ready. But now notice there is a twist to this story, a twist that nobody would have seen coming and certainly would have been unheard of in this time. It says the servants who are ready when the master returns will be blessed by the master. That's not the unheard of part, but that the master will actually serve the servants. That's the unheard of part. No doubt this is a reference to Christ coming and blessing us with his return. And then, of course, we know that Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So more on the blessings when we get to our second parable. Then there is somewhat of a second twist, or again, you might call it a separate parable altogether. That is, this is the, the point about the thief. The point, of course, is that if you know when a thief is coming, you would be ready. I mean, the whole business of thievery hinges upon stealth. That is, a thief is only going to come into your home or into your business when they think no one is there and they can get in unnoticed and take whatever it is they want. They want to be at the time when no one is expecting it, which is why many of us have alarms on our homes and on our property because we know that they're going to try to come when we are not ready. If I were to text you and say, hey, by the way, this evening at 6 o'clock, when you and your family go out to dinner, me and my buddies are going to come and we're going to rob your house. If you got that text and it was legitimate, you would change your plans and you would make sure you are at home and probably with some others with you. So both of these stories tell the same tale. We need to be ready because we don't know when Christ will return. All right, so let's go back to the first verse. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action is, a, is an old phrase. In fact, it goes all the way back to the institution of the Passover. You may remember that they ate the Passover for the first time just before God was going to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And God said there were several things in that Passover meal that were to be done in haste. That is, they were to use unleavened bread. They didn't want to take the time for the bread to rise. They were to, to eat with their belts fastened. That's the way my translations has it back in Exodus. They were to fasten their belts around them as a, as a symbol of the fact that God was about to deliver them, and this was done in haste. That's what the phrase means here. Men in this day would have worn long robes. But when they were preparing for work or about to do something, they would cinch the, the rope around with a belt so they would not get in the way of what they were doing. And that's the phrase here. And it means to, to be ready because something is about to happen. Keep your lamps burning. Reminds us of that parable that we've talked about several times. We're not doing it in this series, but we've talked about it several times. That parable about the, the ten virgins 
They've all got their lamps, but five of them do not have enough oil. And therefore, they're not ready when the bridegroom comes, and they are not allowed into the wedding feast. But the other five do have enough oil, and they are welcomed in to the wedding supper. And so the idea here is the same. We are to be perpetually ready. And then in verse 40, at the end of this parable, it is simply stated. It's not a picture in this case. It is just a command. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at a time when you do not expect. Now, of course, when we talk about this whole topic, eschatology is what we call it theologically. We might just call it the study of end times from a practical standpoint. But by whatever term you use, there are always two questions that dominate the argument or the discussion when it comes to end times. When is it going to happen? And what will be the signs for me to look for so that I know that it's near? Those are the very same questions they asked of Jesus, and it is the same questions that are uppermost on people's mind today. And that is why if I were to advertise that I'm preaching a series of sermons on end times, particularly from the book of Revelation, our attendance would no doubt increase because people are hoping for some sort of nugget of truth that they can hang their hat on in answer to those two questions. They know they haven't found it in reading the scriptures, but they think maybe a preacher like me could somehow come up with something that they were not able to see in their reading of the Bible. So let me do my part this morning, and I'll try to answer those questions for you. When is Jesus coming, and what will be the signs that he is near? And my answer is, I don't know. And neither do you, and neither does that TV preacher that you occasionally listen to, though he seems to quote a lot of scripture and act like he does know the answer. The reason I don't know the answer is because it says right here that I don't know the answer. The Son of Man is coming at a time when you do not expect. And earlier in the story, it says he might come in the second watch of the night. He might come in the third watch. You don't know what time of day it's going to happen, and neither do I. So let's stop trying to figure out all of the details, though there is a place for observing the signs, but let's focus on what the Bible tells us to focus on, and what is that? Be ready, because you do not know when it's going to happen. All right, that leads us to our second point, the question that Peter asks in verse 41. We will not spend a lot of time here. We're going to spend most of our time on points one and three, but we do need to look at this question. Now, we know that Peter is always the one who is willing to speak up, right? He's the spokesperson for the group. Peter is not the, the timid soul in the back of the room who won't lift his head up and make eye contact with the teacher. Peter is the one sitting down front who may or may not raise his hand, but he is going to speak. And that's what he does here as well. And so he asks the question that many of us are thinking but are afraid to ask. Are you talking to me? I mean, that's what Peter's asking. Are you talking to me? And from this, we get our second point. Be ready because this applies to you. Now, it's interesting that Jesus actually doesn't answer Peter's question. But sometimes in not answering a question, we get the answer to the question. 
Now, throughout this series, we've tried to put these stories in the context in which they took place. That is the surrounding scriptures. And part of that includes who it is that Jesus initially told this story to, because that goes a long way in helping us to make sure we're on the point of what the story is about, and we're not straying into other topics. So in this particular case, it's a little more difficult. Luke, in his dialogue, makes it a little harder for us to understand who the exact audience is. In verse 1 of this chapter, there are large crowds present. And yet, while there are large crowds, Jesus is talking to the disciples first. In verse 13, he is responding to a question or complaint from someone in the crowd. In verse 22, he is speaking to the disciples again. And so the whole section seems to go back and forth between he's talking to the large group or he's talking to his inner circle. And so this very well may have been a legitimate question, a question that Peter was confused about. Are you talking to the whole crowd or are you talking to us as your disciples or are you talking to all of us? But usually when we ask that question, we ask it because we want to know whether or not we have to pay attention. Right? Are, does this apply to me? Because if it doesn't, then I'm going to check out for a few minutes and I don't have to listen to you. That's why sometimes at the very start of a sermon, I try to make the point that whatever the subject matter of the sermon is, in some way, it does apply to all of us because I'm trying to keep you engaged and understand that this does apply to you. I don't have to do that in this particular case because I know without a shadow of a doubt that this applies to every one of us and it applies equally. By that I mean it applies no matter what stage of life we are in. It applies no matter how old we are. It applies no matter what our marital situation might be. It applies to everyone regardless of what our vocation might be or our income might be. There is no distinction on this point. There are no divisions whatsoever. Everyone is on equal footing and must be equally alert Because this question does apply to us. So be ready because this does apply to you. Now, I told you that point would be rather short. Probably, I didn't look it up, but probably the shortest point I've ever had in a sermon. But we now need to move on to our third point and the next story where we're going to see be ready because the stakes are high. Now, again, we are in a first century home. And we are there with servants and their masters and the interaction between these two groups. In fact, in this case, we are dealing with a servant who is in management over other servants in the home. So his role would have been overseeing the other servants, which means it was his responsibility to provide for them. He was the one who was going to take the household goods and make sure they were distributed fairly to the entire group. And so we have, again, the distinction, we've seen this before, but we have the distinction between a wise and a foolish servant, between a good or an evil servant. The wise and faithful servant is promised blessings again. We talked about that several weeks ago. We mentioned it briefly in point number one this morning. But when the master returns, that good and faithful servant is going to be blessed by the master. And those blessings will include greater responsibility. That makes sense. The master now knows that he has a servant whom he can trust, and therefore he's done well in what he has given him, and so he will be given more. 
Now, we don't hear those same words here. We don't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the idea is certainly the same. The image and the results are identical. This servant will be honored and rewarded by the master for his faithful work. But the majority of this parable is about the unfaithful servant. The majority of this story is about the servant who is not doing what his master called him to do. And therefore, when the master comes, he will not be blessed. Rather, he will face punishment. And that's why I'm saying that the stakes are high. Because when the master returns, it's either going to be blessings or punishment. So let me just pause right there for just a moment and state the truth. The master is coming again. He might be delayed from our perspective. He might not come according to our timetable. He might not come when we think he should, but the master is coming again. Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is going to return, though again, we do not know when. And when he does return, the time of reckoning will be at hand. There will be no time at that point for excuses, and there will be no time at that point for further delays. Even, if we want to go back to our introduction, even your wife's favorite phrase on Sunday morning will not work. What's that favorite phrase? I'll be ready in 10 minutes. When Christ returns, you won't be able to say, give me 10 more minutes. We don't have that option. Christ is coming again, and therefore we must be ready at all times. And so we return our attention to the parable itself. It gets a little more graphic and gory, perhaps, than maybe we were expecting, at least from the Bible. We got no problem with this when it comes to the movies we watch. But we don't necessarily expect this when we read especially the New Testament, especially in a story that's depicting the return of Christ. But first, we need to look at the servant who has been unfaithful. What has he done while the master was away? Well, he has certainly not been watching for the master's return. Instead, he has concluded that the master is delaying, and therefore he can do whatever he wants to do. This includes mistreating the other servants. Remember, I told you that as the, the head of the household while the master's gone, part of his responsibility was caring for the other servants, and he is not doing that. Worse yet, he is mistreating them. And then I said that it was his responsibility to distribute the household goods, and he's certainly not doing that either. He is hoarding it for himself. He is selfishly applying all of the provisions to his own benefit. He is acting like a high school student whose parents have gone out of town for the first time and left him home alone. Not that I speak from experience, I've just read about it. But this high school student, home alone for the first time, decides that he can do whatever he wants to all weekend long, as long as he's got everything cleaned up by Sunday night when his parents come home. However, this particular time, the parents, for whatever reason, decide to come home on Saturday night instead of Sunday night, and now he is in big trouble. Punishment is sure to follow for this rebellious teenager, but it certainly does not compare to what we see in this parable. Again, this is a parable designed to teach a spiritual truth, so I don't think the point is mutilation of the body. I don't think we need to focus on that. The point is, however, that punishment will be enacted upon the unfaithful servant, and that punishment will be se severe. 
Now, there will be degrees of punishment. Did you notice that? Based on knowledge or lack thereof, there will be degrees of punishment. Some will be punished more than others, but don't think for a minute that that excuses your ignorance. You might get punished less, but it's still going to be severe punishment. And I don't think people are going to be sitting around comparing one punishment to another. And thus we find the ending refrain again that we've seen before. The more you have, the more will be expected of you. So the more knowledge you have and the more knowledge that you rebuff, the more will be expected of you when Christ returns. But again, let's not get lost in the imagery or the details and forget that those who are not ready when Christ returns will be punished. No matter the degree, everybody who is not ready will be punished. So the stakes are high because there will be blessings for those who are ready and there will be punishment for those who are not. Now, we are not quite done because while we've examined the stories and we have tried to hammer home the point, we've still not answered one of the biggest questions that you might be thinking about when it comes to this story. Again, the point is be ready. Christ is going to come at a time that we do not know, and therefore we must always be ready. But what does that mean? What does it mean that you and I must be ready? Well, the most obvious answer is to make sure we are trusting in Christ. That our salvation is not based on what we do, but it's based on what Christ has already done. So that when Christ does return, we are trusting in him and him alone. We have repented of our sins and we have turned in faith to Christ. And that, of course, means that we are then clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And if we want to take this a clothing imagery from our story, and certainly it's appropriate that we need to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way we can be ready when Christ returns. But is that all that is necessary? Does it mean that I can repent of my sins and trust Christ by faith, and then all I need to do after that is go sit on a hillside somewhere and watch for Christ to return? Or I go to the opposite extreme, I just forget about Christ altogether. Obviously, I'm ready. I have the righteousness of Christ. Now I can live life any way I want to. And when Christ returns, I will be ready. Or is there some middle ground between sitting on a hillside watching or forgetting all about it and living however I want? Well, if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, you already know the answer. We are to wait. We can't bring it about faster. We're not in control of that. And so we are to wait until Christ returns. We are to watch. That is, we are to pay attention to what's going on around us, longing for the return of Christ. But we're not to get sidetracked and scheduling and all that. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we're not just to watch and we're not just to wait. But in the meantime, we are to work. That is, in this moment of the kingdom of heaven, you and I are to be working in that kingdom. Remember, both of these parables this morning and some, of that, some that we've looked at previously have talked about servants and what they're doing waiting on the master. They have been divided into good and wicked. They've been divided into faithful and unfaithful. But what has the faithful servant been doing while he waits on the master's return? What have they been doing? They have been found at their post. That is, they are doing what the master called them to do. 
Now, the unfaithful ones, as we've seen, have taken the opportunity to forget about the master and do whatever it is they want to do. But the faithful ones have been serving. What is it that servants do? Servants serve. You and I, the Bible says, when we are adopted into the family of God, we are servants. Now, there's other terms that the Bible uses of us as well, but it uses that one frequently. And that is not a term of derision. It's a term of honor. Paul calls himself multiple times a servant of Jesus Christ. And again, what do servants do? They serve. So our refrain is not just to be, I'm saved. Our refrain is to be, I'm serving. That's what servants do while they wait on the master. And again, this is not work salvation. We are not working in order to be saved. We are working because we are saved, and that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus could have said in these parables, he could have said to us, if you profess your love for God, you're ready. But that's not what he says. In fact, we saw that in the parable two weeks ago. It's not the one who says they will and then doesn't. It's the one who initially did not say they would go into the field, but later did. So we are to serve the king. We are to serve our master in his kingdom until he returns. And that's the same thing we see here as well. We are to be found serving when Christ returns. Now listen, that doesn't mean that every moment of every day needs to be consciously serving the Lord. I understand we have other things to do. We have jobs to go to. We have families to take care of. We have vacations to enjoy. But rightly understood, all of those things and everything else in life can also be done for the glory of God. But it does mean that our thoughts and our actions are to be focused on the kingdom of God. It does mean that the kingdom of heaven is to be our priority, not our own kingdom. It means that we look for and long for the return of Christ, and while we wait on that day, we faithfully serve him. And even as the Bible ends in Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We say that, we think about that, we long for that. But in the meantime, we're found at our post, doing what God has called and commanded us to do, serving our King. Let me pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we would be ready. We do not know the hour nor the time when you are coming, but we do know you've promised to return. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will return to take you to that place. And Lord, may we be found at our post when that happens. May we be found faithful servants of yours so that we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that have been prepared for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.